0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is supported by the kind and generous members of the Duma, And special thanks go to j Ron and Vicky, plus listeners on Spotify and Apple Podcasts who have recently signed up. If you want to join them to get members-only episodes, early access to general release episodes, ad-free content and written transcripts for the price of a cup of coffee a month, then you can by subscribing to The Boyarduma via Patreon, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, check the episode notes for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of Russia. This is episode 69 Peter and Sophie. Thanks for listening in. So, last time out, we covered the Lopuchino conspiracy. Chetardy and stock's attempt to discredit Bistuzhev and draw Elizabeth away from Russia's traditional ally, Austria. We then brought the War of the Hats to a close, saw how the British got involved in the War of the Austrian Succession, covered Peter Fyodorovich's promotion to Grand Duke and heir to the Russian throne, and saw how things got worse for the Brunswick's, and in particular, young Ivan. This week, Chetady and Lestok, who are starting to resemble a comedy double act to a pair of bumbling Parisian detectives, try to get to or at Bestuzhev via a cunning plan B, which one isn't that cunning and two won't be driven by them. Meanwhile, Peter Fyodorovich needs to get his act together because he's got some important German guests to entertain and he really needs to make a good impression. And then finally we get to see if the Austrian Empress, Maria Theresa, can remove Silesia from Frederick the Great's clutches. Anyway, I'm assuming that you, like me, can't wait to get stuck into that little lot. So, no more waffling or preamble from me. Let's do some History of Russia. So we all know who Peter was and is, but who was this Sophie? And more importantly, who would she on to become? Well, Sophie, or to give her her full name, Sophie Frederica Auguste of Anhalt-Zerbst, was born in 1729, and she was the eldest daughter of Christian Auguste, Prince of Anhalt-Zerbst, who'd served in the Prussian army under Frederick William I, and was still serving there under his son Frederick the Great, and Johanna Elizabeth of Holstein-Gottorp, who was the sister of the Adolphus Frederick, who'd kept an eye on young Peter after his father's death. And we might as well get this over and done with now, just in case you didn't know, or hadn't guessed, Sophie would eventually go on to become Catherine the Great. And here it's also confession time, because in a couple of previous episodes, I've blithely stated that Adolphus Frederick was Peter's uncle, when in fact he was Sophie's. Mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Oh, and while we're at it, I'm also indebted to two listeners who picked me up on episode 37, Russia and Ukraine. Listener Chris pointed out that I'd referred to Polish as an Eastern Slavic language, whereas it is, as I should have known, a Western Slavic language. And then Nico took me to task regarding how my pro-Western bias was getting in the way of an otherwise well-researched podcast. Nico, you made some valid points, and I will respond to your email now that I'm back from my holiday. Okay, back to Sophie and her family. The best way to describe Johanna and Christian was as minor to perhaps middling German nobility, a situation that Christian seemed to be happy with, or at least accept. Whereas Johanna, who was a lot younger than her husband, was incredibly ambitious, but distinctly unhappy and frustrated with both hers and her family's position. But all of that was about to change, because in 1743 their daughter Sophie had been summoned to Russia to meet her second cousin, Peter Fyodorovich. Now they'd actually met once before, well their families had, back in 1739 when Sophie was 10 and Peter was 11, but this time the stakes were much higher. Peter was now nearly 16 and was heir to the Russian throne and his aunt, the Empress Elizabeth, wanted to get him married off and settled down. But why had Sophie in particular been chosen? Well, as always, there were a number of reasons. She was the right age, almost 15, and like Peter, was German. Plus, she's had the right sort of upbringing and education. There was also the connection between the two families. Johanna's eldest brother, Charles Augustus, had at one time been engaged to Elizabeth, but he had unfortunately died in 1727, and so the marriage never took place. Plus, of course, there were the political considerations. Frederick the Great of Prussia saw the marriage as a way of cementing an anti-Austrian alliance, but this time between Prussia and Russia. And Frederick was keen to get things moving because he knew that Pestuzhev, Elizabeth's foreign minister, had been working on getting Peter married off to a princess from Saxony. The French, via Chetali and Lestock, who were probably unaware of Frederick's intentions regarding Prussia's alliance with Russia, saw the marriage as a chance to further discredit Pestuzhev, who, as we know, was against the match, and get Elizabeth back under their influence. And as for Elizabeth herself, Well, she wanted someone, anyone, who could get her nephew to shape up and grow up. And from what she'd heard so far, she thought that Sophie would fit the bill. However, and as we've seen before, when Anna Ivanovna and Biron were trying to get Anna Leopoldovna and Anton of Brunswick sorted out, these things were easier said than done. A mention of Anna Ivanovna highlights the irony of the current situation, because Having criticised the previous regime for being too pro-German, here was Elizabeth trying, with Prussian help, to get a German princess to marry her, in effect, German heir. Still, needs must and all that. Sophie and her mother, Johanna, departed for Russia at the beginning of January 1744. First stop was Berlin, for an audience with Frederick the Great, who wanted to get some kind of idea... Of what Sophie was made of, and provide a steer to her mother Johanna, who he would use as his unofficial eyes and ears in Russia. And then on the 16th, they were back on the road. Well, more of a cart track than a road, heading east towards St. Petersburg, over 800 miles away. Their route took them through Shvest on the Oder River, where Sophie said goodbye to her father, who sadly, and unbeknown to her, she would never see again, and then on through Danzig, Königsberg, and then Riga, where, due to the anomaly with the calendars, they suddenly gained 11 days. Throughout the entire journey, they received a constant stream of letters from Bruma, yep, he's still in Russia, who, on behalf of Peter and Elizabeth, well, more Elizabeth than Peter, was asking for updates on their progress, and making sure that when they arrived, that they were aware of the correct protocols to follow. Nothing could be left to chance. They finally arrived in St Petersburg on February the 3rd, or 14th, only to discover that the Empress wasn't in Petersburg at all. She was in Moscow. Now, we don't know why Elizabeth had decided to go to the old capital. Perhaps she wanted to impress her visitors by showing them the heart of real Russia, or maybe she felt that Moscow was safer and more secure. Whatever the reason, after a couple of days' rest, Johanna, Sophie and their entourage, now dressed in the Russian style, were back on the road, travelling the 400 miles east towards the Golovin Palace in Moscow. On the 20th of February 1744, they met with both Peter and Elizabeth. Peter exuded awkwardness and fidgeted throughout, but said the right things and smiled in the right places. Elizabeth was at her most regal and commanding. She was dressed to impress, bedecked in jewels, and while she welcomed Sophie and Johanna warmly, for the rest of the audience her image, character and manner exuded pure, unadulterated power and status. Over the next few days, as Sophie spent more time in and around the Russian court, she came to understand a number of key things. The first was that Peter was odd, hard work, and difficult to like. The second was that if her time in Russia was to be a success, she would need to impress the Empress first and foremost. And the third was that she was getting the sense that her mother, Johanna, could become a problem. So what was Johanna doing or not doing? Well, it's more a case of what she hadn't grasped and her overall attitude. Basically, the whole Russia thing had gone to her head and all she could think about is what it meant for her personally and her insatiable and up to this point frustrated ambition. She'd had audiences with Frederick the Great, the Empress Elizabeth, and she would soon be the mother of the wife Of the heir to the Russian throne. In essence, Johanna was behaving and acting as if this was the Johanna show, and her daughter knew that if she carried on, that it would all end in tears. But there was nothing Sophie could do or say. She had her own role to play, and she decided that to play it to its fullest extent, she would need to do two things – learn the Russian language and practice the Orthodox faith. With regard to the latter, Elizabeth had made herself abundantly clear that this was a must have and not a nice to have. The only problem was that prior to leaving home, Sophie had promised her father that she would never abandon the Lutheran religion. To assist her, Elizabeth had chosen Simon Todorsky, the Bishop of Pskov, as Sophie's religious instructor. Todorsky, who was a wise and learned man, who happened to speak fluent German, soon picked up on his new students' inner turmoil and explained that at the heart of things there really wasn't that much difference between the two religions and that it was only at the surface, with the services and the rites, that they differed. The most important thing, he said, was to understand and practice the fundamentals of Christianity. Now this explanation seemed to make sense to Sophie, but when she wrote to her father to let him know how things were going, he wasn't buying any of it. Her Russian language studies were proving to be much less of a problem, partly because there was no associated moral dilemma, and partly because the more hours you put in, the more you learn. And Sophie was certainly putting in the hours. She was even getting up in the middle of the night to repeat and memorise Russian words. However... In March, the wheels came off big time. But before we explore the reason and the outcome, let's take a quick break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more, and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back. At some point in the month, Sophie developed the symptoms of a heavy cold. Now, perhaps this had been brought on by the stress of the conversion to orthodoxy or by the excessive hours of study. Whatever the cause, Johanna, who was worried that people would think that her daughter was susceptible to illness and that the wedding would be postponed or called off, tried to keep the whole thing hidden. And of course, this only made matters worse. Within a few days, Sophie had developed a fever and a doctor had to be called for. Acute pneumonia was the diagnosis, and the prescribed treatment was that 18th century panacea, bleeding. Now, Johanna was vehemently opposed to this. Her eldest brother, Charles Augustus, who at one point had been the Empress Elizabeth's intended husband, had died back in 1727 from, Johanna claimed, excessive bleeding, and there was no way she was going to let her daughter suffer the same fate. And of course, if worse, if the worst came to the worst, this would also mean that Johanna herself would be out of the picture. So while Johanna argued with the doctors, Sophie's condition worsened. And soon the news that all was not well with the princess was circulating, first in Moscow, then throughout the rest of Russia, and finally within the courts of Europe. Elizabeth, who'd been away at a monastery outside of Moscow, rushed back, and walked, so we are told, straight into a row between Johanna and the doctors. But the Empress was having none of it. She ordered the doctors to proceed with the bloodletting, and when Johanna continued to protest, had her evicted from the room. Elizabeth then settled down to nurse the patient back to health, but for a while, things were very much touch and go, with Sophie slipping in and out of consciousness. The reaction from others when they heard the news was mixed. The French ambassador, Chetardy, panicked. Frederick the Great started to look around for a suitable replacement, and bestuzhev well, he kept his own counsel, but he told his closest followers that as things stood, it was unlikely that Sophie was going to pull through, and that therefore his Saxon princess was the only candidate. Now, somehow Elizabeth got wind of what he was up to, or thinking, and quickly put him straight. Whatever happened to Sophie, there would be no Saxon marriage. And so Bestuzhev slunk back to the doghouse to eat yet more humble pie. At the end of the month, and with Sophie no better, help of the religious kind was sought. However, when Elizabeth told her that a Lutheran pastor had been sent for, Sophie grew frantic, and instead asked for Todorsky. Now, whether this happened or not, we don't know, but by mid-April, Sophie was on the mend and had asked to receive further orthodox instruction. Her reputation with Elizabeth was therefore enhanced, and she was in everyone's good books. Her parents, however, were seemingly hell-bent on throwing their own respective spanners into the works. Sophie's father just wouldn't let things lie with her conversion to orthodoxy, and it took all of Frederick the Great's powers of persuasion and several weeks' worth of time before he grudgingly accepted the matter. Johanna's spanner, though, represented the bigger and trickier problem. Ever since her audience with Frederick in Berlin prior to her Russian trip, she'd got it into her head that she was the Prussian king's number one special agent. Now, Frederick had told Johanna that Bestuzhev was anti-Prussian, which was true, anti-French, also true, and was therefore the major impediment to the hopefully forthcoming marriage between Peter and Sophie. And fair enough, Johanna had met with and exchanged letters with Châtardie, the French ambassador to Russia, and Marderfeld, his Prussian counterpart. The French, as we know, were as keen as anyone to get Bestuzhev out of the way, but Johanna had become, if anything, even more obsessed with the removal of Elizabeth's foreign minister, a fact which Chetardy, in particular, was keen to exploit. The only problem was that neither of them could see the bigger picture. Bastouchev had tried and failed via normal channels to stop the marriage, and since Sophie's illness, he'd been effectively sidelined, but this latest turn of events just hadn't registered with Chetardy or Johanna. And so, rather than let sleeping dogs lie and events take their course, they continued to express their thoughts and opinions about Pestuzhev, including their attempts to get him removed from his position, in letters that were then sent on to Frederick in Prussia and Louis Fifteenth in France. Even worse, the letters also contained disparaging remarks about Elizabeth. However, and unbeknown to everyone, the wily Bestuzhev only appeared to be lying low. In the background, he had set up an intricate system to intercept, decode, and copy each of the letters and their responses. Now all he had to do was wait for the right moment. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, Armand Lestocque, who had up to this point been Chetadis' accomplice, had seeing which way the wind was blowing, and had somehow distanced himself from the latest round of intrigue. Not that it would do him any good in the long run, but we'll get to that in a future episode. Bestuzev's moment came in early June 1744. Elizabeth had decided to go on another visit to the Troitsa Monastery. Bestuzev, gambling correctly that the Empress would therefore have time for a spot of reading, placed about 50 of the incriminating letters before her, and waited. Elizabeth predictably hit the roof. First to feel the Empress's wrath was Le Châtari, who was summarily dismissed and given 24 hours to leave Russia. Then Marderfeld, the Prussian ambassador and a 20-year veteran of the Russian court, was summoned, given a severe dressing down, and within the year, he too would receive his marching orders. Finally, it was Johanna's turn. Elizabeth coldly told her that she could stay on with her daughter, but only until the wedding day. After that, she would no longer be welcome in Russia. To further signal her displeasure to France and Prussia, and anyone else who was thinking of interfering in Russian foreign policy, Elizabeth promoted Bestuzhev to the position of Chancellor, and awarded him vast new estates. Bestouchev had played the long game and had managed Elizabeth to perfection. From now on, no one could be in any doubt that Russia would be pursuing a pro-Austrian line. There was now no need for him to oppose the marriage. Elizabeth had made it abundantly clear that the wedding would go ahead come hell or high water, and the French, the Prussians and the Holstein allies were no longer a credible threat. Game set and match, Alexei petrovich bestuzhev ryumin Frederick the Great was incensed, particularly with Johanna. For the time being, he kept his own counsel, but he now had to accept that in the short term at least, his plans for an alliance with Russia were in tatters. It was time for a rethink. And so whilst he's off doing that, we'll take our usual, very quick look at the current state of affairs with the War of the Austrian Succession, which, you'll be pleased to know, will include Frederick's Plan B. So, back in the summer of 1743, the Austrians and the British, together with those Bavarians loyal to Charles VII, the Elector of Bavaria, and Holy Roman Emperor, had formed an anti-French alliance via the Pragmatic Army, which for a while had proved to be highly effective. To counter this alliance in the West, the French and their Spanish allies joined forces. In March 1744, Louis XV declared war on Great Britain, and in May, a French army invaded the Austrian Netherlands, more or less modern-day Belgium. Unfortunately, at this point, cracks started to appear in the British-Austrian alliance. Austria favoured engaging the French in Alsace, and Maria Theresa's plan was to wrap things up there, and then move east to invade, and hopefully regain Silesia. The British were less concerned with the Netherlands, and more concerned with a rumoured Jacobite uprising in Scotland, and so it was left to the Dutch, who were closest, but really didn't want to be involved, to provide the only realistic opposition to the French. Meanwhile, over in the east, Frederick had finished his rethink, and in August 1744, while the Austrians were fully occupied in eastern France, Prussian forces struck out from Silesia and invaded Bohemia, starting what would become to be known as the Second Silesian War. The Prussian army, which was about 80,000 strong, quickly converged upon Prague. By mid-September, it had taken the city, and by the end of the month, Frederick had moved into southern Bohemia, and was making his way toward the Austrian border. These latest events were a severe disappointment to Maria Theresa. Frederick's initiative had thwarted her plans to be the aggressor in the Silesian theatre, and it also meant that she now had to move her army from France all the way back to Austria and Bohemia. Once he realised that the Austrian army was on the move, Frederick sent messages to the French, asking them to dislay and disrupt Maria Theresa's forces. But this didn't happen. Either the messages didn't get through, or they did get through, but the French didn't act on them, and that could have been partly something to do with the fact that Louis XV had fallen dangerously ill with smallpox. The Austrian army was therefore able to get across to Bohemia quicker than Frederick had anticipated. Plus... There was another factor that would upset the Prussian king's apple cart, in that the Austrians had persuaded the Saxons to rejoin the war, but this time on their side. And so, by early October, the tables had been turned, and it was the Austrians who were advancing through southwestern Bohemia towards Prague, with a Saxon army marching towards the same destination, but from the northwest. So Frederick now had two options. He could either retreat or he could try and lance the boil by forcing the Austrians into a decisive engagement. In the end, convinced that he could win any battle against either opponent, he chose the latter. The trouble was that the Austrians invoked their own plan, which was a. to avoid a decisive engagement, and b. attack-harass stroke, Frederick's supply lines. And soon the Prussian army's supplies began to run low, and, with reports of dysentery breaking out in his ranks, Frederick was forced to do the one thing he really didn't want to do, retreat. And in early November 1744, the Prussian army was in full retreat, first to Prague, and then back to Silesia, with the Austrians and Saxons breathing down their necks. So all in all, 1744 had been a pretty bad year for Frederick. His plan to remove bestuzhev had backfired, and now the Prussian army was on the back foot. And that is where we'll be leaving things for this week. I was going to carry on and look at events in Silesia during 1745, but that will have to wait until the episode after next, as will the ongoing saga of Peter and Sophie's wedding plans, because next time... We're going to take a step back and look at the overall state of the Russian Empire in 1744, plus we'll spend some time trying to work out exactly what was going on in the mind of Elizabeth Petrovna. So until then, dear listeners, chins up, heads down, stay safe, and try not to worry. After all, worse things have happened at sea.